Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. After an incredible career that has spanned more than 50 years, the director of the National Weather Service, Dr. Louis Uccellini, has announced he will be retiring on January 1st, 2022. As one of our most esteemed returning guests, we are honored to have this opportunity to speak with Dr. Uccellini and recollect the countless contributions he has made to the weather and climate enterprise. Throughout his career, he has been a dedicated public servant and innovative leader at the highest levels of NOAA and the National Weather Service and NASA, and led the charge on having the United States become a weather-ready nation. His legacy will have lasting impacts on the field of meteorology, and today we're excited to celebrate his accomplishments and discuss what's next for him. Louis, thank you for joining us on this, well, I don't want to say perhaps last episode of Weather Geeks with you as national uh, as a guest, but perhaps as the National Weather Service Director. Um, wow, what, what an amazing career. What, what got you to this point that you decided it was time to hang it up? Well, you know, I've been um, been doing um, this for 50 plus years, you know, the uh, as a research meteorologist, first as a student that got involved in research activities, even as an undergraduate and and worked on uh, my first paper was on the gravity waves. I, I did that as a bachelor's and master's thesis. And I've been on the go ever since doing a PhD, getting involved with national programs as a student, um, and then going to NASA and, you know, building a research career there. Uh, of course, you know, being at the University of Wisconsin and getting all my degrees there before I went to NASA, I, I was able to work um, uh, with uh, Vern Sumi and his, his team um, on what was then the new satellite, you know, era that was emerging um, out of that institute. Um, and it's just been nonstop. And at the same time, you know, I met my wife in, at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, she's been there every step of the way. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary. And we realized, you know, it, it's time, right? Um, so anyway, um, uh, it's, a, it's a tough decision. I can, I can tell you, I can forewarn you. It's uh, it's the toughest decision uh, to make, actually. I mean, but you, your body of work. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here, you know, sort of you you you've done so much for the enterprise and for NOAA and the Weather Service. You know, I don't even know where to sort of deep dive on this, but I so I want to start the question with you. I mean, what what do you let's 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 go back to your research contributions first before I go with the National Weather Service. What do you feel is your sort of most significant contribution from your research career? Because I think people know your weather service career, but you are an esteemed researcher. I mean, I, you know, your, your book with um, Paul Coson on, you know, winter storms is just one of the, the go-to resources. So from a research perspective, and I, and I know this is not a swan song for you, but what do you reflect on as your most important contribution research-wise? Well, 
Well, I was I was obviously always curious about the weather right from a child and, and the whys. You know, I wanted to know why things were happening. And, and of course, I was always interested in why forecasts were wrong as a kid, especially when they were forecasting snow and we got rain. Um, but in all seriousness, I was just, when I got to the University of Wisconsin, I was just um, elated with what I was learning, you know, about something I always wanted to know more about. And so there was gravity waves. I, you know, just... And what are these this periodic nature in the convective storms? And then that led to gravity wave papers that at the time was was very controversial. Now now it's accepted. Two to four hour gravity waves weren't supposed to be able to exist, right? Much less, you know, affect the development of uh, severe weather. And then the jets, the jet streaks. Um, I read a little book I got out of a out of a supermarket by Elmer Ryder that had this series, this science on jet streams. Right. And I read that and I says, man, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and then I started doing all the research on jet streams, cyclones, uh, got to NASA. Um, I mean, and started working for Joanne Simpson after working for uh, getting my master's under Charlie Anderson, who let me loose on gravity waves, even though his grant had nothing to do with it. Uh, and then went and worked for Joanne Simpson um, at um, at NASA. Um, I I just felt like uh, from going from Don Johnson as my PhD advisor to Joe Ed, it was like a dream from a research perspective, just being allowed to work on things we saw as important and and do it as a team. That was the other thing about you know going to NASA was their team approach. You you saw it every day in missions, in engineering, and in the science. And having that team and having a cadre of people that you know just you you're recruiting to come in are just you know the best and the brightest coming out of the university at the time joanne just attracted everybody you know and um it was just this this terrific experience and it, it was just everything we touched seemed to work the president's day storm um became the vase demonstration scientist the visitor atmospheric sounder the first geostationary sound actually at the, up to this point it's the only geostationary sounder from the United States, at least. Um, and doing work with that, you know, working with sounding scientists that are brilliant and uh, split windows. So, you know, I, it was just this one thing after another that we touched worked for us and worked for me. Um, and um, it certainly, I used everything I was learning during that period to bring over to the weather service when I made that that switch, because I also wanted to improve the forecast. And, and when, um, when did and, you switch over? What year did you start at the weather service? 1989. 89. Yeah. yeah. So I got my PhD in 77, one year postdoc under Don Johnson, postdoc with uh, Vern Sumi and um, SSEC, science, Space Science and Engineering Center, and then went over to NASA for uh, almost 11 years. Um, most of it working uh, with Joanne Simpson and, and and the group she allowed us allowed me to develop uh, under her um, and then took that and went over to the Meteorological Operations Division, the largest forecast office in the National Weather Service. Bill Bonner and Ron McPherson hired me in and I didn't have one day experience on the forecast floor. Yeah, I was going to point on that because that's interesting. Yeah. You went right into the operational agency, and from based on what I know about you, that was your first real taste of operational side, right? Oh yeah, 
Oh yeah, and I, I, you know, Bill Bonner uh, unfortunately passed away several years ago. I've been in communications with Ron McPherson, uh, you know, um, and still even like last night, and uh, I still asked them what were they thinking <laughs> when they, they hired me. I mean, I really wanted to do it, and I'd spent time on the floor as a visiting scientist, but um, they took a chance with me, um, and I certainly. Um, made a point of uh, emphasizing to the folks on the floor when I, I, I became their division chief that I was there for them. Um, and uh, boy, you know, that floor needed it because there was no, there was, it was all analog techniques. It was all, you know, copying paper. There was no Unix. Uh, there was just, they were just starting to play around with some workstations. It was, um, it was the old days, okay, and um, and look where they are now. This is what's the weather prediction center now, okay. Um, so, yeah, um, just just an amazing story. And I think it's lessons learned for some of you that I know listen to Weather Geeks. In that, um, one thing that Louis said is how his research uh, career, you know, he progressed into different areas, and also how he stepped out of a comfort zone, perhaps, of research at NASA into sort of more of an operational environment. So I want to transition out of your National Weather Service career um, and thinking really more about your time as the director of the National Weather Service. I mean, you get so much there. The Weather Ready Nation, obviously, is a big part of your legacy. Would you consider it your biggest National Weather Service director legacy, or are there others? Well, um, you know, we skipped over 14 years as the NSEP director. Well, let's talk about it. Then. I, 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 I want to I make this the tour de force of your yeah. career. So let's fill in that gap because I think it is relevant to your experience becoming the National Weather Service director. So you and I think that's where I probably first became aware of you, actually, as the, as that your time at NSEP. So tell us about those years. Yeah, I, I'm laughing about it because I, I was actually um, when I was in MOD, leading MOD, Ron McPherson, uh, who had that job before me and then hired me into there, became the NMC director. He um, he had this strategic um, vision for NSEP, but we had to put it together. So we put together a team and I was the head of that team. So the whole team that put together NSEP as we know it that now, uh, with, uh, but without space weather, because space weather came on board in 2005 when I was the NSF director. But, you know, putting that all together, um, he, he put together that team that I was uh, put in charge of uh, really did, a, I think, a phenomenal job. Again, you know, this whole idea of team, right? I mean, something I learned at NASA, you got to have the team to make things to make things work. Well, didn't know that I would someday be the head of NSEP. When I came back in 1999, uh, Jack uh, Kelly was the one who actually selected uh, me to be the, the head of uh, NSEP, uh, replacing Ron. Um, you know, there was a lot of work to do. And one of the things was we had a, we, we were frozen computer-wise for 10 years um, uh, in the 90s, where we, even as the, um, what was now the Environmental Modeling Center, was, was really moving things forward from resolution, uh, the global models, the regional models that we were, that were being developed, couldn't get them on the computer. So finally, you know, in 99, as I was coming on board, we were just getting the first 
IBM system, parallel processing. We were the first operational center in the world to go to parallel processing. So it was a risk, but there was a reward, you know, and we were leasing computers, not owning them. So we have more flexibility in building up the space. So all that started happening uh, in 98, 99 timeframe. And with that new computer, something very important happened was we decided based on scientific experiments, right? Samex experiment in the Midwest, the Thorpex experiment globally, which I was involved with through the WMO, ensemble modeling. And multi-model ensembles is the best way to go. So we introduced the Shref and we introduced the, the, the Jeffs, the Global Ensemble Forecast System, and then the, uh, the North American Ensemble Forecast because we were in partnership with Canada through Thorpex working in real time. So the realization of multi-model ensembles really hit. And that's we made that strategic decision to go that way and build our modeling capabilities that way. Then we did this climate forecast system, an operational climate forecast system for seasonal prediction, working with the research community, have a six-member multi-model ensemble in that. So I contend we were the first operational center to have a seamless suite of multi-model ensembles from the short range to the to the seasonal range. And that's what we run today. Now we've got to optimize it. We've got to streamline it through the unified forecast system and the like. But that was a major effort. And then the building. I don't know if you ever, did you ever get to go to the uh, World Weather Building? In, I, I, in I actually did, Louis. I actually, I feel like I actually maybe talked to Ron there before you took okay. over. I came in as a grad student. <laughs> Okay. Well, that was not a building that you wanted to build the National Centers for Environmental Prediction. And so yeah, one really of the first things that impressive from a visual standpoint. Right. And, you know, it was just a mess, actually. Yeah. Um, and people try to get out what, out of it. They try to get a project where we could move nearer. So when I came on board, made that top priority was to get out of that building. It took 13 years, but we got out. We got into a beautiful building that matches the mission of what we do with the collaborative now, collaborative service centers, the EMC, NESDIS, OAR, all in the same building, working together, great conference center, international meetings have been held there before COVID. So it became an environment that people wanted to come to work in and it fostered the collaboration within the building, okay? Not you walk in an elevator, 10 feet, you, you go into a building, 10 feet in an elevator, and you disappear in your office the whole day. It's a wide open atrium and all people interact better. Uh, and it's it's really terrific. And I'm really looking forward to the post-COVID era when everybody can get back in there. I was there yesterday. It, was, it still strikes me as really a, just a beautiful environment to get the work done. So from that perspective, that, you know, the seamless suite, the collaborative nature of the fork, uh, the centers, and, and um, the building itself um, was what I thought would be the career highlights until I got the weather service job. <laughs> okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And we are back on a special edition of the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Louis Uccellini, who is announced this week his retirement from the National Weather Service is most recently serving as the director, but as you just heard, he has a long career and legacy within NOAA. Uh, and I, I hope you didn't miss some of the things he said there, because again, some of the foundations of our weather prediction enterprises, we know it today, ensemble model, multi-model uh, um, ensembles, uh, climate forecasts, these things, you heard the origins of those during his time as the director of INSEP, the National Center for Environmental Prediction. Again, for those that are familiar with NOAA, you know about centers. If you're not, there are a suite of centers within NOAA. People know about the Hurricane Center, National Hurricane Center, and so forth, Storm Prediction Center. You've got the National Centers, and so that's kind of the, sort of the way they're arranged. Okay, now I want to fast forward to the National Weather Service directorship. When you walked in the door there, what was your biggest challenge? Uh, the, uh, the budget um, structure, um, the budget process, uh, lack of a governance document. Um, we were coming out of a financial um, misstep, as I'll, I'll, I'll re refer to it, uh, that was pretty serious. And um, so we were, not we were not a favorite child of those on the Hill um, since um, the people on the Hill really do care about the National Weather Service. Let me tell you that, you know, bi bicameral, bipartisan, incredible support for the National Weather Service. Um, so that's what I walked into. And I, I, um, that's the first step. There were two things. One, uh, we had to get a, a budget process. We had to get a structure, a process, and a governance document that people, the senior executives, the management team could make work to support those forecasters in the field, uh, the, the, the folks in the weather service who are also responsible for IT development, uh, model development, et cetera, to get that focus and get it supported, that we would improve uh, not only our forecast but our outreach to the emergency management community. Um, and that's where the Weather Ready Nation aspect comes in. But that was my first task. And we got it done basically in two years. And it's amazing when you think about it, because I had to get approval through OMB to the Hill to restructure the budget, because that's the way we get our money. That's the way we're going to execute the budget the, that we're appropriated through Congress. So they have to approve everything, rightfully so. So we made the case, we showed it, we had to run it in parallel with our old budget structure and show them the advantages of the new system. We had to develop a governance document and to say, this is the way it works. This is the way we plan. This is the way we develop the execution aspect of it, the schedules, et cetera, et cetera. This is the way we track it on a quarterly basis. And then we, you know, and that's a three-year cycle that we work. Um, we got that done. And um, I was told uh, through the National Academy of Public Administration 
that actually recommend that we do this um, after we laid out our concerns of what we needed to do. Um, they never seen it get done and get it done in two years. So that was really important. And I can tell you that from a budget uh, planning, budget appropriation, budget execution perspective, um, we've run on eight cylinders and we haven't had a problem uh, since, okay? Uh, and one of, the, one of the things that I did with the governance document, which um, I would say I would credit Jack Kelly, who you know I worked under uh, for uh, uh, three to five years, depending on how you count his positions, uh, you know, power of the pen, right? All the SESers had to sign the, uh, the governance document. So if you're gonna work as a senior executive in the National Weather Service, you're gonna sign which meant that everybody knew how, you know, we were acting together, how we were planning. We weren't gonna do end runs, et cetera, et cetera. It really worked. People really bought into it. And one of the things is we update that governance document based on the weaknesses. So it isn't like you're signing it and saying, well, I'm not sure this is gonna work. Okay, well, we'll keep track of things that aren't working and we'll update it. So we're on like version 4.0. It's sort of like a computer code for, uh, for one of the big computers, right? You get version <laughs> one, you yeah. find out that it's not working as all the researchers uh, and model developers thought it would. It has to be adjusted. And, and so you go to version two, and then you go to version three. Well, we're on version 4.0. This was, this was critical. Okay, so that was step one. In sort of in parallel, it was the Weather Ready Nation, where we came to the realization and. Uh, 2011 severe weather season was sort of the epiphany for a lot of us that the modernization, as great as it was and as successful as it was in bringing the new technology, degreed meteorologists, um, et cetera, et cetera, the uh, new structure, you know, especially with NEXRAD, you know, being a centerpiece for our warning systems, a new structure of the forecast offices. We did a great job in forecasting, uh, outlooking, forecasting, watching, and warning for all these severe weather outbreaks. And an incredible number of people were dying, equivalent to what we saw in 1974. Like the 2011 uh, April outbreak was almost equivalent to the 1974 outbreak. Um, that's a, a famous uh, um, severe weather outbreak in the central part of the country. Almost the exact same number of people died, between two, 316 in one, 314 in the other. What's missing? It's the last mile. It's addressing the connection to the people who are actually in the communities, evacuating communities in front of hurricanes, preparing communities for severe weather outbreaks. That's who we had to connect with. Water resource managers for droughts, for floods, et cetera. You know? um, so that Weather Ready Nation strategic plan, which was developed um, when uh, Jane Lepchenko came in, Jack Hayes was director of weather. So again, I was tagged to be the head of a strategic team. Okay, so again, another team gets together with field people, the union vice president, uh, people from NSA, really uh, solid. Um, and the idea was uh, with Weather Ready Nation from the one person who was not a meteorologist, by the way, came up with Weather Ready Nation as an outcome for society, right? Not, hey, help good is the front going to be forecasted? No. How is it going to affect society? So you have to go to the last one. It becomes the service aspect. Models are great. Observations are great. You, you, need, you need those. You need the models. You need an IT system. You need a dissemination. All the things that are in our portfolios now, in our budget portfolios, 
for the first time, but you need the analyze, forecast, and support the S, right? This is one of the offices now in headquarters. That's the linkage to decision-making. And um, so that meant that our forecaster's job was not over with a forecast and a warning. It was not over from looking at a model to say what you're going to do or in grid, you know, into grids, you know. No, it's how are you linking with decision makers? What's How are you assessing the risk? Social science, right? Uh, human behavior, human factors. So it becomes a physical and social science to take us out of our comfort zone, as you mentioned before, to connect with decision makers. That was the big change. And I have to say, our people in the weather service, people in the enterprise, because we were told we can't do this alone, again, by the National Academy of Public Administration, great, great strategic plan, can't do it alone. You need the enterprise, you need everybody involved. So that's where the Weather Radiation Ambassadors came from, right? The point is, it took us all out of our comfort zone as physical scientists with the social science component, working with decision makers, and it's working. It's still got work to do, right? But it's really working. And um, and this is this is the pathway now for the future, is going beyond the forecast and warning, connecting with in uh, with the decision makers in the atmospheric type things like tornadoes, et cetera, and in the water, flooding. Still a big challenge as we see. So um, that's that's it, that was it. Those are the two things. And, um, and everything that came along with it, because we didn't lose sight of the science and the technology that we would need to move the forecasts and warnings forward, but the job doesn't end there. Yeah, and I, I think that we saw that recently with Ida. I thought the National Weather Service forecasts were amazing, the remnants and and then the initial stages, but getting through that last mile. I mean, it was there was clearly information that you all put out uh, that we were going to deal with significant flooding in the Northeast, but there were still challenges because of not so much the forecast, but that last mile. Yeah. You know, so. you know the thing is, it's you know that's an added factor there. You know, the magnitude of the rainfall is something that we've never seen before. You know, we had that record with Andre with 1.94 inches in one hour in, in Central Park. It got smashed, smashed by Ida. Two weeks later, an hourly rainfall rate of 3.15 inches. Yeah. It doesn't happen in the extra tropical areas in New York. It never happened before. Yeah. So there's obviously an infrastructure. There's a build issue here. The infrastructure can't deal with this magnitude of rainfall we're seeing today. Same thing southwest of uh, Nashville, all right? Um, we're, we're, we're predicting the heavy rain, we're outlooking the totals about right, but the magnitude of the rainfall in a shorter period of time, we're, not, we're dealing with something we haven't seen before. Yes, exactly. Okay? Yeah. So how do you communicate that? It's gotta be a learned experience. And, and when it happens for the first time, that's what you start learning from. Well, that doesn't save the 40 something lives that were lost uh, tragically in New York City, right? So we've got to learn from this. We've got to learn from this. But this is also an infrastructure issue. And whether the built infrastructure in the urban environment, in valleys where people live, right, whether that can handle this kind of rainfall. And I think the answer is no. Right. So we got a we got a big societal issue here that has to be dealt with. And of course, this I believe this is related to uh, the global warming. 
you, we all know as scientists, right? If the air's warm, it's gonna hold more water vapor. And we had a brief moment of heavy rain here. You know, I live south of uh, Baltimore. Um, and I was thinking to myself, you know, when this thing really gets, this, this happened the night before, I said, when this thing really gets its act together over in Pennsylvania, New York City, if it rains like this for a long period of time, we're in trouble. So we, we, kept, on, we kept on messaging that, but not 3.15 inches in, in one hour. One hour. Um, and, and, have, and have a flash flood emergency in all five boroughs of New York City at the same time, never happened before. First time. First time. And then the, and the counties to the north and Nassau County to the east. I mean, this was a this was really uh, an incredible experience. First time we've anybody has ever seen it. So we got to learn from it. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Louis Uccellini about his 50 years of service. Mike Chesterfield, who is the outstanding executive producer of Weather Geeks and someone that I know that you've met when, when you've come down and did the TV show, uh, he, he texts me uh, literally in real time while we're doing this. He had a couple of questions and I want to honor Mike uh, and allow him to ask you a couple of questions via text. He was curious about what did you wish you would have accomplished but didn't while you were the director of the National Weather Service? And then he also wants to know what's the future of the National Weather Service? So what, what, what did, is there so? So yeah, something I think, that didn't get accomplished that you wanted or had a real goal of getting accomplished. I thought I lost you there, but you're still there. Yeah, the um, the um, the rate at which we can improve the infrastructure, um, the rate in which we can improve the models, is certainly uh, something that um, you know everybody wishes and everybody in, in certain respects complains about, right? Um, but we had such a huge infrastructure issue to deal with, um, with respect to the budget, as I've noted, but also with respect to how we receive data, how we process it in, the, uh, in general, how we process it for the models, getting the computing capacity, which we have. I mean, I started with, what, two trillion, and we're now up to, uh, you know, we're gonna be up to like, you know, uh, increased by four petaflops with the new, I mean, you know, we're really exponentially increasing our computing power, which is an important part of this. But the rate in which you can do this, um, you know, through the budget process, even with the full support of the Hill, is not as fast as what I think people would like, certainly wasn't as fast as what I would like. But it is what it is, you gotta, you gotta do with what you have. Uh, but I wish we could have, you know, gotten that done, but I wouldn't have done that at the expense of the focus we had on the last mile, because it's the delivery of the services that are really, really the important factor in saving lives and mitigating property loss. And that's what, that focus I wouldn't take away. It's just that getting that infrastructure built uh, 
uh, took a bit longer than I even I would have hoped for. Louis, where are we? I mean, I, you, you know, talking with Dr. Louis Angelini, we we you know we hear about things coming forth. And you were just talking about the computing, and I know there were sort of massive uh, increases in funding after Sandy and so forth. Where are we in the great model race? The European person, you you hear about this all the time, and I, yeah. and I thought I always think it's a bit overblown for, out there in sort of the weather social media world because the GFS model is a world class model, and European model is a world class model, and we use them both effectively. Where are we on that? Yeah, the Europe the European Center um, certainly has um, you know a great modeling system, and they have a more restricted. Um, missions so they can really focus their compute power um, on that one um, global model. We, we have to forecast space weather to the ocean surface and that down. We're now getting into the Earth system science approach, you know, with fully coupled models, Chrysler. So, um, you know, we, we got really short range, very high resolution. You know, you, you know, the, the researchers are clamoring for um, grid resolvable convective ensembles, you know. So, boy, talk, talk about a huge challenge for Time the next retire, director eh? of the National <laughs> Weather Service, right? Yeah. So, well, the thing is, it, it's a very exciting aspect to be working towards, yes, right? But what we are doing is we're we're really redoing the whole structure of our models to make it more efficient, build in the new dynamical core, build in the bed of physics representation. I, I think our biggest weakness is is the uh, data assimilation. You know, I, we talked about the choice we made for multi-model ensembles. One, of, if we did that, it was very clear that our trip down the road for four-dimensional variational analysis for data assimilation was going to be impeded. We couldn't do both. We chose the multi-model ensemble route. Right. Um, and we have a data assimilation system today that's built off of those ensemble approach, that hybrid variational scheme. But there's but, you know, there's a lot of work on optimizing code for 40 VAR and we're involved in that work. And I believe that's another part, you know, another brick in the wall uh, of us moving forward in this whole um, modeling continuum. But, you know, Something you said was we all use the the whole group of models. We have partnerships with the European Center, with the UK Met, with Canada. We we exchange what we're doing, right? Because our forecasters use them all, use all those models. It isn't one model against the other. Right. We pull them together. And the forecasters have access to them all. And that's critical. And if you look at the ver verification, I keep on telling folks, look at the verification of the of the NHC lately, the Hurricane Center. That track forecast is the best out of all of them. Amazing. Okay. So, so that's what we want to see. All right. Access to all these models, a global effort, and, and a, a partnership again, a team, uh, an international team, trying to advance prediction now, today, even as we speak from an earth system science perspective, fully coupled, applied from the mesoscale all the way up to the sub-seasonal and seasonal scale with one functional system that um, leaves us room on the computer to do all kinds of research with it. So I, I think that this is, um, 
what the future is pointing to. And I think it'll be a very exciting time for whoever does get the job um, uh, after me. I got a couple, we don't have a lot of time left with you, but I got a couple more questions I just got to get to. One, I think is an important question for your sort of successor, because I'm curious in what advice you would give to whoever steps into that role. But I'm particularly interested in how you, Louie, have successfully navigated the political waters, uh, Sharpie Gate, sequestrations, government shutdowns, uh, Sandy, you you navigated all of this and your longevity in this role su uh, suggests that you did it effectively. Uh, so how did you do it? And then what general advice do you have for your successor going forward? Well, you know, the, the simple fact with respect to managing within government that one has to accept is that appropriation law is what you live by. The budget process, the executive plan can offer a proposal. What comes back is what you operate off of. That's appropriation. That's what comes from the Hill. So you work that. And I, one of the things that I was blessed with is a period of time when, again, bicameral, bipartisan, support. You saw this in the Weather Act. It was passed unanimously in both, right? I mean, this was really incredible. The people who helped that happen actually are the partners I was talking about that we linked in with through Weather Ready Nation, the emergency managers, water resource managers. They're the ones canvassing the, at the state and local levels, not just the federal levels. And this is every, every emergency manager, every organization is arguing for us. Right. Well, that hits every house district in the United States. Right. So the point is we that connection, that connectivity allowed that to happen because I can't go on the Hill and argue for anything but the president's budget. I can't lobby the Hill. So you got to recognize that to make it work. Yeah. And, and the same thing with sequestration. It turned out the, the May 2013 uh, tornado outbreak out there in, near Moore, Oklahoma, and El, uh, Del, El Reno, I think it was the El Reno case, you know, uh, the Hill said at that point, weather service and NOAA are not going to be sequestered. But we didn't get out of the budget constraints until 2014. Um, but the fact that we never had to do sequestration based on our performances during these tornado outbreaks and the seriousness of, of the impact it would have had on our weather offices, we made that clear. And it wasn't just for the during the hurricane season; it was the fire season. How the how the heck do you plan for preparing, you know, for that? So, we we never did get sequestered, but we had some rough budget periods there, just from the how long we had to wait before it finally opened up. Yeah, and the weather service is one of the greatest values in the federal government system if you look at their budget to value ratio. Uh, one, a couple of final questions. One, I saw in the AP article that you said you were prepared to be fired after Sharpie Gate, but you stood by your, your well, weather service. Yeah, I, yeah, the point is, is that I had to do what I did from a leadership perspective um, um, and was very uh, sort of careful about exactly, you know, what I said. But not with respect to having the backs of the Birmingham forecast office. And I knew that as soon as you know, I got a courtesy call uh, when before, 10 minutes before the, the, uh, it was, that message was released. Um, and I knew at that point what I had to do that following Monday, because I was giving a keynote address at the NWA, uh, was 
you know, back to a Birmingham office, no matter what the consequence. And, you know, um, you know, I do work in the executive branch. So um, I work at, at I'm not, it's not a political position, but I still work in the executive branch, but I had to back that forecast office. They did the right thing. Everybody during Dorian did the, did the right thing um, in terms of the decisions that were made. Uh, but especially um, the uh, the Birmingham office. Yeah, I, th I thought you're, I think that um, your leadership, you know, I've always been a big, huge backer of the Weather Service. And I think your leadership, I think people uh, within the Weather Service definitely resonated with your leadership. And again, you're, I, Louis, you're a people person. Louis is also a former pro president of the American Meteorological Society. What do you, you know, what do you see the Weather Service looking like in 10, 20 years? I mean, how will it look different than it looks? Today? Well, one of the interesting things is, um, you know, if you look at what we do in our mission statement from producing, uh, you know, weather, water, climate observations, forecasts and warnings, and then for the protection. And this is something that I wrote up in a paper, in the BAMS paper with John Tenhove, is that there's like, it's like an hourglass. The bottom part is the production part. That lends itself to um, more of a centralization, uh, more of a... Uh, you know, IT-based approach now. But when you get for the protection of life and property and you got to do the IDSS at every government level, especially the local level in this country where mostly all the decisions are made for public safety is at the local level, you got to spread out. So that lends itself to a decentralized, we got to do both, okay? We got to have not only accurate messaging, we have to have consistent messaging. So what I see is an improvement and an advancement of IT that allows us to extract the relevant information we're already producing in observations and models, et cetera, really extract that information in a much more effective way. Because we're probably just using about 20 to 30 percent of the information content. And we need to extract much more. But we're going to need that local presence. It's essential for decision-making in the villages of, of Alaska, of the Southwest Pacific states, throughout CONUS, the continental United States, and Puerto Rico, um, you know, and Virgin Islands. I mean, you've got to have that local presence that understands what's happening on the ground as it's happening and understands the human factors of getting people to make decisions in those locations. So I see the, inf I see the, the footprint remaining the same, but the services, being a lot more extensive in terms of the Earth system, and it's not just going to be the weather. It's going to be harmful algae bloom, which NOS is already doing and releasing through forecast offices as the service outlet. I mean, things like that are going to be the environmental prediction is going to be much more obvious from space weather to the oceans. Um, you're going to see this, and um, it's going to be it's going to be through the National Weather Service. It's going to be a sun to the sea as we've all envisioned it. 30 seconds or less, Louis. I mean, someone's getting a call soon or maybe already uh, about the succeeding you as the National Weather Service Director. What are some quick pieces of advice you'd give them? Well, I made up my mind that if, if I only give advice to the next director <laughs> if I'm asked, and it'll be in private. Right. But I would say you've got the best workforce in the world. We know that McKinsey has done three analysis on us over six years. We got the best workforce committed to mission, committed to public service, committed to Weather Ready Nation, work with them, 
they'll take you as far as you want to go. And that's that's unfortunately where we have to end. That I could talk to Louis for for you know hours on end. He's a great colleague, someone that has served as a mentor for me, as a friend, as a colleague, as a confidant in our roles as AMS presidents and colleagues in the field. And I'm certain I said this before he came on. I'm certain Louis holds the record for the most appearances on Weather Geeks <laughs> as the podcast and the TV show. So I'm going to take host uh, privileges here. This week's Geek of the Week is Dr. Louis Uccellini. Uh, Dr. Uccellini received his bachelor's degree, a PhD degree in, at the University of Wisconsin, master's and bachelor's. So he is a triple badger, as I see it, I believe. Uh, became the 16th director of the National Weather Service in 2013. He was the AMS president from 2012 to 2013, the director of INSET for 14 years, and has published more than 70 peer-reviewed articles and chapters and books on numerous subjects, including severe weather outbreaks, snowstorms, gravity waves, jet streaks, cyclones, and the use of satellite data and applications, and more recently, the basis for the Joint Center for Satellite Data Assimilation, WMO-based Grand Challenge for Seamless Prediction, and the restructuring of the National Weather Service to build a weather-ready nation. Dr. Uccellini has been a driving force behind transi transitioning this nation, and we thank you for your service, Louis. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for also giving us this opportunity uh, on Weather Geeks to, to speak with you in this really uh, pinnacle moment in your career. Always a pleasure, Marshall. Thank you. And I am Dr. Marshall Shepard. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.